Letter 10. Best thing I know to do is just dive right in. Letter 10 is all about the topic of bad friends. Bad friends. Isn't at first, isn't this, doesn't this seem like a topic for little kids? Like in the RAs and GAs and the mission friends right now, shouldn't they be teaching on the topic of bad friends? Uh, haven't you, you, you ever heard that? We, you know, you, we tell our little children, tell the children in the church, hey, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Right. That's meant to encourage them. Hey, did, did, am I the only one that went to the church camp where the guy would put a chair on stage? Am I the only one? And he would say, okay, you know this one, right? And they would have, have the little kids stand up there. And they would say, okay, now pull me up to your level. The kid would pull and pull and pull. He's like, really? And then with one great yank, he'd pull him down and say, see, it's always easier for your friends to drag you down than for you to bring them up. Be careful who your friends are. I say, I'm alone. Surely not, right? If not, I'm preaching that Sunday, okay? That... <laughs> we tell our children, uh, uh, be careful the friends you're around. Now, as we get older, if we're not careful, we assume that advice no longer applies. That we, that we somehow outgrow peer pressure. Mm. Such a good reminder in letter 10 that we do not outgrow old-fashioned peer pressure. So here, let's do this. Let's read the first part of this first paragraph and then see if we can draw some of these principles out. Letter 10. My dear Wormwood, I was delighted to hear from Trip Tweez that your patient has made some very desirable new acquaintances and that you seem to have used this event in a really promising manner. I gather that the middle-aged married couple who called at his office are just the sort of people we want him to know. Rich, smart, superficially intellectual, and brightly skeptical about everything in the world. Oh, I gather they're even vaguely pacifist, not on any moral grounds, but from an ingrained habit of belittling anything that concerns the great mass of their fellow men, and from a dash of purely fashionable and literary communism. This is excellent. All right, let's pause there. Who, who are these people? Who, who, who is he describing? He's describing these friends that he said, oh, these are going to make great friends. I thought it would be helpful if we would just describe. He said it's a middle-aged couple. Okay, so we're just going to describe them here. And, and, and who this, who we got here, we got these two friends. Secular Sam and his sweet wife, humanist Holly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my bad. Yeah, sorry, Holly. Humanist Heather. Anybody? Yeah, yeah, all right, all right. Humanist Lady. Now, I gotta use Holly. I gotta use somebody here. Secular Sam and Humanist. Oh, they're perfect. Look at them. Why? They're cool. Oh, look, look at Sam and Holly. They're just, they're just so, just, just. Right. Okay. You know, they're cool, guys. I mean, also, they're wealthy. Who doesn't want to be around Secular Sam and Humanist Holly? You've seen what they drive. And they're, and they're smart. You know? They seem to be so urbane. They're, they're superficially intellectual, the devil says. I think, Wormwood says, I think that's interesting. But they come across as intimidatingly smart. 
And maybe they work with you, you know, at Huntsville or, or, or down in Birmingham, and they, they just seem so sophisticated and so urbane. And then one day, and you've got to know them, and, you know, it's like, oh, these are the kind of people I want to be with. And then one day, you heard Secular Sam and Humanist Holly, and you heard them talking about Christians. And they were talking about you know, these churchgoers in the office, and you thought, oh, man, maybe, maybe you know, I'm a Christian. I've been going to church. I'm a new believer. And they talk about Christians with a little... A little eye roll and a dismissive shrug. Not because the claims of the Christian faith have been examined and found to be untrue. That never really comes up. No, it's just that for, for secular Sam and humanist Holly, it's just that ugh, narrow, legalistic. Those Christians, you know, figures, intolerant of others. <laughs> Those born-agains. Why, why is it those Christians seem to care so much about what other people think and believe? So judgmental. Now again, none of this is based in any sort of intellectual due process. That's not what's important. That's what the devil says. In, uh, 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 superficially, superficially intellectual. Remember, the demon's pretty smart. You remember in James where it says, oh, you, you have faith that there's a God? Congratulations. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. The demons have a better handle on the reality of God than, than Sam and Holly. But the devil doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care that they're superficially intellectual. He doesn't care that they have actually examined the claims of the Christian faith or not. And that's, that's, that's what I draw from him saying. It's not on moral grounds that they've become pacifists. You remember from, if you watched, uh, if you were here a couple weeks ago, uh, I guess it was chapter 7 where they talk about the political parties, pacifist versus patriot. You know, they've chosen their, what they live for, not on any moral grounds, just this ingrained habit of belittling anything that concerns the great mass of their fellow man. That's who they are. Now, in 2023, remember this is 1941, in 2023, I still know these people. <laughs> these trip tweezes uh, uh, is in charge of. And it really, I find, you, you, you be the judge, I mean, you, you'll have to decide, but I think in 2023, their issues mainly come down to, to two things. And over, over time, each generation and each culture will have to uh, 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 sort of uh, fight its own cultural battles. But I think right now, it would be sort of the narrowness of the Christian message. Uh, I think people can't get over, like, let me see if I understand this, like, if you don't... Um, receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're eternally separated from God in hell. I think that, I think for a lot of people, they're like, they have no category for that. That makes no sense. I think that's a big objection. And I think currently, the sexual ethic has been brought to the forefront. Um, and I think those are kind of the cultural, where the, where the battle lines are drawn for a lot of people. I think it's interesting that it hasn't always been those things, and it won't be those things in the future. But for right now, in this cultural moment, I would say those are two of the things that Sam and Holly just can't get over. And that's enough for them to just be like, Christianity is a non-starter. Not because they've actually had any real discussion about either of these things. Everybody understand that's very important. They haven't actually thought this through. They just sort of assume, oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you, you guys believe. You, you know. I think if Sam and, 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 and Holly had to come up with a theology, I think Sam would say with a smirk that his religion is simple. Just don't be a jerk. You know, teach your kids not to be a jerk. You don't need God or religion to not be a jerk. And humanist Holly would agree, and she would say that Christianity, by and large, is probably a bad thing because they're just too judgmental of others. They have Instagram pages that say things like uh, love is love and 
you do you, and on their um, Subaru is a bumper sticker that says coexist. And it's got all the different religious emblems uh, together. So this is, this, is, this is my picture. Lovely people, wonderful people. It, they want a lot of the same things you want. They want uh, good schools for their kids. They want to be healthy. They don't want war. They want peace. There's a, you know, a, lot of, a lot of common ground. Um, but man, if adult life in suburbia USA were a middle school cafeteria, right now they own the cool kids table. They're at the cool kids table. They really are. I mean, they're just so accepting of everybody, and they can't understand why you're not accepting of everybody. And you want to say, "But I am." Wait, what do you mean by accepting? Wait, is this a trap? You know, like, you know, and they just anyway, the allure. They are celebrated right now by American suburban culture. And here's the thing: uh, every now and then, it will happen that they'll invite you to sit with them, and that's what happened to the patient. You get a seat at the cool kids' table. <sighs> Gonna be popular. Anybody? You're gonna have influence. There you go. You're gonna have influence. You're gonna be respected. And Screwtape says, play on that vanity. Oh, play on that. Look what he says. This is excellent. And you seem to have made good use of all his social, sexual, and intellectual vanity. What's he talking about? I'm gonna have the coolest friends. Social vanity, sexual vanity. You know, remember he's a single guy. This is gonna open access to dating all sorts of people that heretofore I wouldn't have had access to being able to date an intellectual vanity. I'm gonna be seen as smart and sophisticated. Tell me more. Oh, did he commit himself deeply? I don't mean the words. There's a subtle play of looks and tones and laughs by which a mortal can imply that he's of the same party as those to whom he is speaking. That's the kind of betrayal you should especially encourage, because the man does not fully realize it himself, and by the time he does, you will have made withdrawal difficult. Get him at the cool kid's table. Don't let him acknowledge that he's selling out on his faith as the price of admission to sit there, and by the time he's sat there long enough, he'll have a hard time leaving. That's what Screwtape's gambit is. That makes sense? Now, eventually, there will come a fateful day. Eventually, he must soon realize that his own faith is in direct uh, opposition to the assumptions on which all the conversation of his new friends is based. Now, I don't think that matters much, provided you can provide, persuade him to postpone any open acknowledgement of the fact. And this, with the aid of shame, pride, modesty, and vanity, will be easy to do. As long as the postponement lasts, he'll be in a false position. He'll be silent when he ought to speak and laugh when he ought to be silent. He will assume, at first only by his manner, but presently by his words, all sorts of cynical and skeptical attitudes which are not really his. But if you play him well, they may become his. All mortals tend to turn into the thing they're pretending to be. Whew. This is elementary. The real question is how to prepare for the enemy's counterattack. Uh, anyone who thinks that this is just for children, I think has not had enough run-ins with the cool kids uh, to really appreciate their allure. I have a cool kids table story. Problem is, I don't remember how long ago it was, but uh, we were still in New York, so it must have been, I don't know, call it 10 years ago. Uh, but enough time had, uh, had passed where uh, uh, I was invited back to my old seminary. I went to Princeton Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey. We were in New York at the time, and it was actually a tragic circumstance, long story, but a, a classmate's wife tragically died, so we all kind of gathered back for that. Uh, but but it, it ended up having a reunion element. We hadn't seen each other. And, um, and I got there, and so afterward there was this big party at the guy's house, and like, 
they found out what I did that, you know, I was, I was ministering in Queens, in Jamaica, Queens, New York City, and I was like suddenly the toast of the party. And they found out that we ministered among the poor and particularly among immigrants. Immigration, huge deal now, but imagine, you know, 10 years ago, everybody's talking about it in New York and working among immigrants. And so people were like, hey, hey, you gotta meet this guy. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> and uh, I mean, really, like, I suddenly felt like this, this heady narcotic of being invited into the halls of, of this, um, uh, the party was very much secular and humanist, okay? Um, and so, uh, in other words, it wasn't just seminarians there. It was, it was intelligentsia, by and large, in a, a secular humanist world. Anyway, uh, and then, so, so I was the toast of the party until, until they said, and, and so tell us about your work. And I was like, well, we, one of the things we do is we offer these, we have these centers set up in these poor neighborhoods, and we offer free English classes to these immigrants who are trying to learn English. No strings attached. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. And why do you do it? And I said, not, you know, not thinking about my cool kid party status, I said, well, obviously, it's to reach them with the good news of the gospel so they can believe and be saved. I'm sorry. So you're trying to convert them? Well, I was. <laughs> and that's when I learned how to get disinvited to the cool kid party. So I, I don't know what an 11-year-old feels like when they do something so embarrassing that they are socially forbidden to never again come to the cool kids table. But in that moment, I knew there went my shot at the cool kids table, right? Because a big law here is you would never, in this world, you would never try to convert someone else. What a narrow and intolerant thing to do. Does that make sense? Um, so the temptation was what? The temptation would have been to be silent when I should have spoken up or to laugh when I should have been silent. See, if I had just played along with knowing laughter, that's, the, that's Lewis's point. I wouldn't have had to say anything to betray what I believe with all my heart, that people need to believe and be saved. I just would have had to laugh at the right moments when they laughed. I would have had to, like, ha-ha, shrug off when they said something like, well, you know, some of these born-agains would probably try to convert those poor people. I could have just been silent when I should have spoken up. Right? And how many times have I fallen to that temptation? But I felt that temptation that moment. It's just too painful to always tell stories where you fail. So every now and then you want to tell one where you got it right. So that's supposed to be funny, maybe a little too real. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. That's what he's saying in this paragraph. He's saying, get the guy so enraptured with this that he is a traitor to his own cause. He's a traitor to what he truly believes. So, so okay, now God is going to fight back. So what's the enemy's counterattack? Well, we got to prepare. Screwtape says. Here we go. The first thing, see that paragraph? The first thing is to delay as long as possible the moment at which he realizes this new pleasure as a temptation. Since the enemy's servants have been preaching about, quote, the world as one of the great standard temptations for 2,000 years, this might seem difficult to do, but fortunately they've said very little about it for the last few decades. <laughs> In modern Christian writings, though, I see much, indeed more than I like about mammon, I see few of the old warnings about worldly vanities, the choice of friends, and the value of time. All that your patient would probably classify as Puritanism. A modern day word for that, legalism. So you say, well, a sermon about not being polluted by the world, that's legalistic. So let's leave that aside. Oh, 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 oh. may I remark in passing, the value we've given to that word is one of the really solid triumphs of the last hundred years. By it, we rescue annually thousands of humans from temperance, chastity, and
and sobriety of life. Whew. Delay as long as possible. Let me just ask you, when's the last time you heard a sermon on choose your friends wisely? You know, don't be polluted by the world. That stuff sounds like youth group from 1980s, doesn't it? Hey, haven't we grown past that? Doesn't that run the risk of being legalistic or, or that, that, that's just man-made religion? Ah, so maybe Screwtape's saying maybe that pendulum has swung so far that we've been able to rescue that word, that, that, that word the, um, uh, uh, I thought of uh, choosing your friends, I thought of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's Psalm 1. So let me ask you, where are you getting your counsel from? Everybody's getting their counsel from somebody. Who's influencing you? Eugene Peterson, in his translation in the message, is, uh, is also good. They changed this in 2018, uh, but uh, before 2018 in the message, it read like this. How well God must like you. You don't hang out at Sin Saloon. You don't slink along dead-end road. You don't go to Smart Mouth College. <laughs> so good. But instead, you thrill to God's Word, and you chew on Scripture day and night. And you see the point he's making. Choose those influences wisely. All right, got to draw something on the board here, and I'm trying to be conscious of the time, and I'm realizing the utter hopelessness of trying to get through three letters. <clears throat> So we got to talk about legalism for just a second. It, it, let's call this, you know, the plumb line of God's holiness. Okay, you, you got to understand the enemy doesn't care. The enemy does. The enemy doesn't care what's going to draw you, and, and all he wants to do is separate you from God. So he will use whatever means necessary. A very popular means is something called legalism. What in, here in Screwtape they're calling Puritanism. Uh, uh, you might call it, I've heard some people say, remember when religion was a good thing? Somewhere around the late 90s and early 2000s, religion came like, became like this weird, like bad word to describe Christianity or whatever. And be like, well, there's Jesus followers, then there's the religious or whatever. I kind of know what they mean, and Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. But the book of James says, you know, the religion, it, it doesn't, anyway, it's just a weird word. It'll probably come back in vogue. These words come and go. Language changes. I can't get hung up on that. Anyway, Puritanism, legalism. Yes, this, this is the way of the Pharisee. Legalism is man's attempt to get leverage on God. So if I do enough good things, you have to bless me because now I'm one up on you. I've got leverage on God. So, so yes, there is a legalistic way that keeps you from holiness. Here's the thing. The pendulum may swing so far the other way that we forget about the other direction. And the other direction is, is living completely against the law, against anti the law. Nomos. So antinomi, antinomianism. So antinomianism is the opposite of legalism. Okay? And this is a life that's just in the gutter. <laughs> you're not a legalist, but you're just you're just down here, like, you know, the, 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 the legalist person over here is saying, Oh, I look down on all these sinners, look at these bad habits they do. This guy's doing all the bad habits and reaping all the terrible benefits. Satan doesn't care. He doesn't care, right? So you have to ask yourself, in your own life, which are you more tempted to be? And just remember, Screwtape doesn't care. Uh, when I taught the 20-something Sunday school class, I asked them, where, are, where is this current generation? I'll tell you right now. I, I, again, I grew up in, the, in, in youth and college in the late 90s, early 2000s. We were squarely here. We would, ne we would never do anything that would sort of break the moral law. Uh, 
you know, the, your great-grandparents' generation. You don't, you, don't, you don't drink or cuss or chew or play cards or, or dance. Some of you shouldn't dance, but that has nothing to do with, you know, right? The total lack of rhythm, maybe the, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so, man, you know, we're all in on that and, and make it a rule for everybody and judge others who do those things. Uh, that was definitely my generation. My fear is that uh, in, in 2023, the pendulum's probably more here, you know? And maybe, maybe we need an old-fashioned revivalist sermon that pushes it back this direction. But that's the problem. If you push too hard here, you end up antinomian. If you push too hard here, you end up legalist. Either way, Satan doesn't care. He doesn't care. Screw Satan doesn't care. He just wants you away from your connection to God in holiness. Does that make sense? So you have to decide under the gracious conviction of the Holy Spirit, you have to decide where you, you're tempted to be. But I, Satan, uh, Screwtape's point here is that word legalism, again, he used the word Puritanism. I think, I think in 1941, Puritanism, a good equivalent is legalism today, has rescued people from temperance. What is temperance? The quality or moderation of self-restraint. Chastity, what is that? That is sexual uh, purity in singleness and sobriety of life, being clear-headed, thoughtful, not being altered by drugs or booze or pills or video games or anything else for those addictive qualities, you see. Um, so, uh, uh, Satan will get you to fall in the trap at, at, at a risk of avoiding being legalistic at all costs. This young man's probably going to walk into the gutter of antinomianism. But the fact of the matter is, he's playing one side against the other. While he's with secular Sam and humanist Holly, he... Um, uh, has to deny his true, you know, Christian behavior, and and then when he's back at church, he suddenly puts on the Christian mask, and that's what we see in this paragraph. Sooner or later, however, the real nature of his new friends must become clear to him, and then your tactics must depend on the patient's intelligence. If he's a big enough fool, you can get him to realize the character of the friends only while they're absent. Their presence can be made to sweep away all criticism. In other words, when he's with Sam and Holly, he's so in awe of their cool kidness that he's kind of like swept up in it. If this succeeds, he can be induced to live, as I have known many humans live, for quite long periods, two parallel lives. He will not only appear to be, but actually be a different man in each of the circles he frequents. That's chilling. You can get to a point of insecurity or whatever it is, deep down it's just sin, where it, it can become so ingrained, you're actually two different people based on the group of friends you're with at that time. And it's like you're, you know, I'm church Tom when I'm with my church people, and I'm worldly, you know, cool kid table Tom when I'm with my worldly people. You can actually get to a point where you're living two parallel lives. Failing this, there's a subtler and more entertaining method. You can make him enjoy living the two lives. Look, he can be made to take a positive pleasure in the perception that the two sides of his life are inconsistent. This is done by exploiting his vanity. He can be taught to enjoy kneeling beside the grocer on Sunday just because he remembers that the grocer could not possibly understand the urbane and mocking world which he inhabited on Saturday evening. And contrarywise, to enjoy the body and blasphemy over the coffee with these admirable friends all the more because he's, he's aware he has a deeper spiritual world within him that they cannot understand. You see the idea. The worldly friends touch him on one side, the grocer on the other, and he... Oh, he's the complete, balanced, complex man who sees round them all. See what he's doing? You're puff, he's puffing up his pride, saying, I am so sophisticated that I actually have a church part of me, and I have a worldly part of me, and I am able to see what neither of them can really see. Ugh. Screw tapes definitely got him where he wants him then. 
Thus, while being permanently treacherous to at least two sets of people, because when you're not who you say you are, you're a traitor to them, right? You're building a friendship with this person and with this person, but it turns out you're lying to both of them. Instead of feeling ashamed, he will feel, instead of shame, a continual undercurrent of self-satisfaction. And then finally, there's even one more thing. You can get somebody to live so hypocritically the two, two different lives, if all else fails, persuade him in defiance of conscience, in other words, no matter how bad he feels about it, continue the new acquaintance on the ground that he is, in some unspecified way, doing these people good by the mere fact of drinking their cocktails and laughing at their jokes, and that to cease to do so would be priggish and intolerant, and of course, puritanical. Uh, in other words, uh, get him convinced that it's actually a good thing that I'm here, so that I can evangelize them. Right, you know? But it's a way to soothe his own broken con uh, conscience. And then the rest of this last paragraph is just icing on the cake. This is just gravy. Here's some other things you can get thrown in. Meanwhile, you, of course, take the obvious precaution of seeing the new development induces him to spend more than he can afford, to neglect his work and his mother, her jealousy and alarm, and his increasing evasiveness or rudeness will be invaluable for the aggravation of the domestic tension. See, get him started to have fights at home because he's so wrapped up in all this stuff. Your affectionate uncle, screw tape. So there you have it. Letter 10 on bad friends. My dream is to get through three of these so that uh, uh, later on we can have space to just do two letters and I can allow for like questions and dialogue. Um, but we'll never get to that promised land if I don't just forge ahead, okay? So I just gotta go ahead, all right? Uh, I'll, I'll stay here as long as you need afterward. Um, but uh, let's go to letter 11. Letter 11, we move from the topic of bad friends to now humor, laughter, jokes. My dear Wormwood, everything is clearly going very well. I am especially glad to hear that the two new friends have now made him acquainted with their whole set. Oh man, secular Sam and humanist Holly got friends. He's introduced to all of them. All these, as I find from the record office, are thoroughly reliable people. Steady, consistent scoffers. Remember Psalm 1? Getting your advice from uh, sitting in the seat of scoffers. And worldlings who, without any spectacular crimes, are progressing quietly and comfortably toward our Father's house. You speak of there being great laughers. Hmm. I trust this doesn't mean you're under the impression that laughter as such is always in our favor. The point is worth some attention. All right, now we're going to look at how screw tape can use... Laughter, humor, joking for uh, enemy purposes. I divide the causes of human laughter into, he gives four categories. <clears throat> Look up here. First is joy. Oops. So humor can be divided into joy, fun, the joke proper. And uh, what's the fourth one? Flippancy. All right. <coughs> He'll take them one at a time, so will we. You will see the first, joy, among friends and lovers reunited on the eve of a holiday. And this is the one Scrutin hates the worst. He can't stand the idea of, of joy. Among adults, some pretext in the way of jokes is usually provided. But the facility with which the smallest witticisms produce laughter at such a time shows they're not the real cause. Uh, everybody understand that sentence? Two old friends get together, you had this experience, you get together, you haven't seen them in forever, you're so overjoyed with seeing them that even stuff that is in no way funny gets you tickled and makes you laugh. 
right? Because the demons are sitting there going, that, that's not even funny. That's not even a thing. That's like a, that's like a Chris Farley movie reference from 20 years ago. Like, that should not actually cause laughter. And yet, these two old guys are laughing, right? Some of you are smiling, I hope, because you're remembering something like that. Or you see somebody you haven't seen. And you just get laughing, and you're laughing. You can't even remember why you're laughing. And the demons are scratching their heads going, I, but, but, what could possibly be causing this? It must be something like this joy as an overflow of love. I love this. What the real cause is, we do not know. Yeah, because you don't know love. We know the real cause. The real cause is love has so overwhelmed a human soul that one of the ways it expresses itself is laughter. Well, something like it can be expressed in much of that detestable art, which the humans call music. And something like it occurs in heaven, a meaningless acceleration in the rhythm of celestial experience. Quite opaque to us. He equates the laughter. The laughter is superfluous. I mean, there's no, I, don't, I can't think of a biological reason why uh, uh, we bipeds should, should have this thing called laughter. Same thing for music. Music doesn't serve some sort of utilitarian purpose. Uh, it comes from the overflow of a creative uh, heart, and art is created. The demons, they can't understand that. And that's why he says it's quite opaque. I mean, we, we can't see through that. We can't understand that. Laughter of this kind does us no good and should always be discouraged. Besides, the phenomenon is of itself disgusting and a direct insult to the realism, dignity, and austerity of hell. This is the exact opposite of bureaucracy and everybody taking themselves so seriously. Right? So, if Screwtape hates this so much, guys, let's try to get more of this in our life. Start right now. Tell somebody at your table a dad joke. Go. Five. Four. Okay, yeah, alright, alright. We tried. Wait, that's the joke proper. We're getting to that one, yeah. But the idea of joy, conviviality, coming together. Get that in your life. We know the source of that is love, and the source of that love is God. The joy of the Lord, the Bible says, is your strength. Fun, he's not a real big fan of it. He hates this. Screwtape's not a real big fan of fun. Fun is closely related to joy, a sort of emotional froth arising from the play instinct. It is very little use to us. It can sometimes be used, of course, to divert humans from something else which the enemy would like them to be feeling or doing, but in itself it has wholly undesirable tendencies. It promotes charity, courage, contentment, and many other evils. Uh, you guys still do stuff for fun, right? Just for the fun of it. You're not being paid. You know, you're, you're just an amateur at some hobby. You know, amateur comes from a Latin word, amo, amas, amat. It means love. That's where the word comes from, ama. That's why amateur, one who does it for the love. Not for the money, not for professionalism, right? So, so you still do that? You know, I, I, I have a, a little running club we run together, and I think about that, like, it promotes charity. Um, Charity is not like, we feel so bad for you, we'll run slow, <laughs> though it does. Uh, but it uh, uh, what is that? It promotes love, right? Uh, a pickup game of basketball can promote courage. I, mean, I remember all those years in Queens, and we would have some youth ministry and be like, hey, uh, Tom, you're, you're tall, why don't you come down to uh, Rucker Park here in Harlem and play a pickup game of basketball? I'm like, cool, 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 cool. Okay, Lord, you're going to have to play through me. Uh, I don't have the strength on my own. <laughs> but promoting courage. Uh, contentment. We're not out looking for the next thing because we're, we're having fun. We're, we're, we're surrounded by whatever hobby, whatever people. Um, uh, the, Satan hates that. Screwtape's not a fan of that either. Now, the joke proper is a little bit better. It turns on a sudden perception of incongruity. And that's true. Um, uh, I heard Cade, uh, you told a dad joke's pretty good. Don't you tell dad jokes to your kids? 
What's, uh, what, what state in the country has the, uh, has the smallest soft drinks? Do you remember that one? Minnesota. Minnesota, yeah. So, you know, right? So, why that's funny, why that's, did Annie laugh just now? When you, not a fan? Why that's funny is many, M-A-N-Y, and soda, right? S-O-T, okay, you get, it turns on an incongruity. That's what makes jokes funny. Um, that's a more promising field because of dirty jokes. So he's saying, I'm not thinking primarily of indecent or body humor, which, though much relied upon by second-rate tempters, it's often disappointing in its results. He tells you why. The truth is, humans are pretty clearly divided on this matter into two classes. There are some to whom, quote, no passion is as serious as lust, and for whom an indecent story ceases to produce lasciviousness precisely insofar as it becomes funny. Uh, that's a crazy thick sentence, but the point he's saying is, um, there's two groups of people. Some people, the, the lust instinct is actually shut down the minute it's joked about. When it becomes funny, you laugh it off, you move on. The others, it, the laughter and the lust instinct are excited by the same things. That's why he says, there are others in whom laughter and the lust are excited at the same moment by the same things. So the first sort joke about sex because it gives rise to many incongruities. The second cultivate incongruities because they afford a pretext for talking about sex. So if your man is of the first type, body humor will not help you. I shall never forget the hours which I wasted. Hours to me of unbearable tedium with one of my early patients in bars and smoking rooms before I learned this rule. Find out which group the patient belongs to and see that he does not find out. No, the real use of jokes or humor is in quite a different direction. And especially promising among the English who take their, quote, sense of humor so seriously that a deficiency in this sense is almost the only deficiency in which they feel shame. Humor is for them. And I, I know he's picking on 1941 Brits, but I think that this could be applied to our culture today. I, I believe it. Think about how snarky how sarcastic, how biting so much of the humor is today in culture. Humor, here, but, but even that, he's not even, it's not even that, that, that the meanness of a joke. Here's what it is. Humor is for them the all-consoling, and mark this, the all-excusing grace of life. Hence, it is invaluable for destroying shame, as a means of destroying shame. Why does Screwtape like the joke so much? Because if you can make somebody who should rightly feel shame about a sin, if you make a joke about it, everybody gets off scot-free. He gives some examples. If a man simply lets others pay for him, he is mean. Uh, that, that, that word means a cheapskate. Mean is like the British sense of he's a cheapskate. So if he's always letting other people, you always go out to dinner, and there's always one guy in your group of friends who always, the, the check comes, and he never picks up the check. Everybody else takes their turn. Everybody else picks up the check. He never does. So he's a cheapskate. But if he boasts of it in a jocular manner and clicks his fellows with having been scored off, he's no longer mean. He's a comical fellow. So what he does is he goes, oh, there's the check again. Not me. I never pay. Got, got you to pay again. Ha, ha, ha. And everybody's like, oh, you got me again. That's true. What just happened there? Well, by making a joke out of the fact that what, what you really are is you're being a jerk to your friends, you're being a cheapskate. Now, though, oh, it's funny, you're all good. See, Satan wants you to use humor to laugh off what, in fact, is mere cowardice is shameful. Cowardice boasted of with humorous exaggeration and grotesque gestures can be passed off as funny. Oh, man, y'all. Uh, yeah, the other day, uh, uh, 
I'm making up a story here. I, uh, it's not true. I, uh, you know, I, I was running, I was running my running club, and a car came up behind us, and, you know, one of these electric cars, and we didn't hear it until it was right on us, and it was so scary, and I, I was running with Steven Special, and I shoved Steven into the road because I was scared, and I got in the ditch, man, and I was like, see you, Steve. <laughs> it's funny, and everybody's laughing, and eventually somebody's like, you, you do realize, like, that was cowardice, and you sacrificed your friend to save yourself, but nobody would ever think that because ha, 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 and plus Steven's fine. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right? If you can laugh that off, then you're left unaware of the fact that in that moment, you were a coward. And you chose yourself over the life of another person. That's not. So screw tape wants you constantly doing that in every area of your life, right? Oh, you know. <laughs> yeah, I really, uh, I, failed to, I failed to do that. Or, you know, I, uh, another day where I forgot my, my kids at school. <laughs> I left them there. But, you know, I'm a dad. <laughs> it's like, well, wait. No, that's, not, that's neglect, right? All right, maybe getting too real here. We'll just move on. Then. <laughs> a thousand bawdy or even blasphemous jokes do not help toward a man's damnation so much as his discovery that almost anything he wants to do can be done, not only without the disapproval, but with the admiration of his fellows. If only it can get itself treated as a joke. And this temptation can be entirely hidden from your patient by that English seriousness about humor. Any suggestion that there might be too much of it can be represented to him as, here it is again, guys, as what? Pure, exactly, legalism. It's puritanical. Or as somebody said, a lack of humor. That's exactly right. Now, the best of all is flippancy. In the first place, it's very economical. Only a clever human can make a real joke about virtue. Minnesota. See, it's clever. Only a clever human can do that, Kate. Or indeed about anything else. But any of them can be trained to talk as if virtue were funny. Among flippant people, the joke is always assumed to have been made. No one actually makes it. But every serious subject is discussed in a manner which implies that they have already found a ridiculous side to it. If prolonged, the habit of flippancy builds up around a man the finest armor plating against the enemy that I know. That's a scary sentence. And it is quite free from the dangers inherent in the other sources of laughter. Remember, chari uh, uh, charity, courage, all that contentment. It's a thousand miles away from joy. It deadens instead of sharpening the intellect. And it excites no affection between those who practice it. Your affection, Uncle Screwtape. This one is so hard to put. If, if I give an example, I, I risk putting too fine a point on it, and I miss the overarching point. I'm afraid if I give no examples at all, it will fall flat. But this is the, the word I would use for flippancy in modern day. You have to guard against this with your life. This will put an armor shell on between in your relationship with God like nothing else. And it's this word. Cynicism. When you become cynical, it is very easy as an immature believer. And really, as, as, as you continue in your Christian walk, here's what will happen. You will meet Christians. And, and there, there's an entire podcast industry right now about this, and it's blown up. The church is one of the easiest things for people to pick on, and it's like, once you get in the church world, once you get in Christianity, it becomes so easy to pick on that which is corny, that which is cheesy. Uh, and the best example I can think of, I was backstage at this Christian event, and with this band, and it was like, everybody was laughing, but they were like, I was silent when I probably should have stood up and said something, and I was saying something when I should have been silent, no doubt. 
But they were sort of, I think, making fun of this uh, uh, somewhat uh, little cheesy uh, Christian. It was the, the, this preacher that had been on. Anyway, and he would say hallelujah all the time. And it was kind of like, you know, a little, uh, a little uh, I don't know, weird. And so they were picking on it. But it was, I don't know, it was just, there's, I've never forgotten that moment. Um, it just felt so dark. It felt so cynical. Because the guy was so sincere. And yeah, he was corny and he was cheesy and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, like, he believed. And there was an innocence to that and a purity to that that I thought, shame on us. And it got to a point where, like, nobody even had to say the joke. You just had to, like, say, like, you know, hallelujah or whatever in that way. And everybody would laugh. And I thought, that is a step toward cynicism. And, I, again, I don't want to put too fine. I don't want to give too, I don't want to, like, name names of podcasts and websites and, and comedians that I think, they just get us a little too close to, I just don't want a cynical church, and you don't either, you know? Keep your heart young and childlike and uh, pure. And when everything becomes like this cynical joke that's like, well, we all know, you know, we, we know. You, that's cute what y'all are doing, but we'll, we'll, we know the real thing. Um, anyway. That was a great way to explain it. I've now made it ten times more cryptic, so good for me. Well done. That's, that's, that's great. We're going to edit this whole part out. You understand? <laughs> all right. I've left myself nine minutes and 30 seconds to cover the scariest letter of them all. And we're going to do it. Letter 12 turns a massive corner in the book. I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but in this novel or in this book or whatever you call it, in this series of letters, letter 12 is the very bottom. The top part, what do you call that? The zenith? What's the very bottom or the apex? Is it the nadir? Nadir? Can anyone confirm or deny? If nobody knows, we're going with that. All right, it's the very bottom point here. And it's scary. This is scary. Screwtape is worried that the only thing, he is so good. He's so good. We got him. Just don't try to pull the patient away from God too fast. Set the hook slowly. Have you ever been fishing with somebody? And as soon as they felt that first tug, they're like, you know, pull it out. And the whole thing comes out. What do they tell you? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let him set the hook. Right? No, no. Shouldn't we get this fish in the boat? Set the hook. Let him complete. Don't. Patience. Don't lose it now. You've come this far. And now we're at a point where it looks like the patient, all hope is just about to be lost. Come back next week. It's good. Okay, but, my dear Wormwood, obviously you're making excellent progress. My only fear is less than attempting to hurry the patient, you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I, who see that position as it really is, must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. See, we know we've introduced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy, but he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change are, of course, trivial and, you know, replicable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, <laughs> heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. Satan is going to lie to you and tell you that these little choices you make are trivial and they're revocable. You can always get them back anytime you want. Mm. For this reason, I'm almost glad to hear that he's... Oh, this is chilling. I'm almost glad to hear he's still a churchgoer <coughs> and a communicant. Uh, presumably, this would have been an Anglican guy. It just means somebody... He's, uh, he's still taking the Lord's Supper, right? So he, he's still plugged into the life of the church. Now, I know there's dangers in this. <laughs> there's dangers in going to church. <laughs> 
But anything is better than that he should realize the break he's made with the first months of his Christian life. See, as long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian life, he can still be made to think of himself as one who's adopted. Ah, sure, I've adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we don't have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy, feeling that, you know, he just hasn't been doing very well lately. Okay, what, 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 what is Kritik talking about here? What's he saying? He's saying, don't overplay your hand. Don't let him wake up to his spiritual condition. The guy's going down fast. You've got him. So the worst thing, the worst thing you can do is tempt him to a really big sin because if it's big enough, he's going to go, whoa, I'm in trouble here. So keep him just gradually turning away from God. If you can keep him in church, that's better. It's even better. It's just one more way he can wear the mask and convince himself he's fine. This kind of thinking is what led Martin Luther... This is a Latin phrase here. It's a great one. Pecca fortiter. Sin boldly. Yeah, you gotta clarify this, right? Or yeah, if you ever teach this eighth graders, make sure you really, really drill down on this. Yeah. Sin boldly. What on earth? Why on earth would Luther write a letter to his, his buddy to tell him to sin boldly? Because of what Screwtape's doing right here. He's saying, look, it, you're in a spiritual state where it, it would actually be better for you right now to be the wild, prodigal son who has gone so crazy that he's face down in the pigsty wanting to feed, uh, wanting to eat what the pigs are eating because then he would be awoken to his true spiritual condition. Instead, you're the older brother who thinks you really haven't done anything wrong. So if you'll sin boldly, it might just wake you up to the fact that, wait a minute, I need to repent. Now you hear that, you go, that's crazy. He's saying it's better to do whatever it takes for you to get to that point to go, I'm in real trouble. He doesn't really mean he wants you to go out and sin. He's saying, if, if that's it, if you're just going to like, by little drips and drabs, kind of make your way apart from God, and just, I have a dim uneasiness. I'm going through a phase. No, call it what it is. That would be better. So the, we'll come back to that at the end. The dim uneasiness, this dim uneasiness needs careful handling. In other words, get him dark. Get him depressed. Get him to feel farther and farther from God. Now, if it gets too strong, it may wake him up and spoil the whole game. Got it? Don't overplay your hand. On the other hand, if you suppress it entirely, which, by the way, the enemy will... Well, probably not allow you to do. <laughs> we lose an element in the situation which can be turned to good account. So if such a feeling is allowed to live, but not allowed to become irresistible and flower into real repentance, it has one invaluable tendency. It increases the patient's reluctance to think about the enemy. When a human starts to backslide, that's what this chapter is really about. Backslide. They get depressed. They need what the old revival preachers called a rededication, a true repentance. But they're just backsliding. Watch what it makes you do. It increases the patient's reluctance to even think about the enemy. See, all humans at nearly all times have some such reluctance. But when thinking of him involves facing and intensifying a whole vague cloud of half-conscious guilt, 
This reluctance has increased tenfold. They hate every idea that suggests him. Just as men in financial embarrassment hate the very sight of a passbook. Isn't that good? When you're drowning in debt, you don't even want to see the credit card bills when they come in. You don't want to see anything that looks like them. In this state, and, 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 and so when you're backsliding and you get further and further from God, you, you almost dread turning to God because it means you have to face your guilt. Screwtape wants to lean into that. You go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you don't want to face it. You don't even want to think about it. In this state, your patient will not omit, but he'll increasingly dislike his religious duties. He don't want to go to church. He'll think about them as little as he feels he can decently can beforehand and forget them as soon as possible when they're over. See, a few weeks ago, you had to tempt him to unreality and inattention in his prayers. Now, you'll find him opening his arms to you and almost begging you to distract his purpose and benumb his heart. He'll want his prayers to be unreal, for he'll dread nothing so much as effective contact with the enemy. His aim will be to let sleeping worms lie, which apparently is British for let sleeping dogs lie. Got it? When somebody's backsliding, the one thing they need is to turn to God. But in that moment, Satan slips in these lies. You don't want to face him. You don't want to, you don't want to turn to him. You, he's mad at you. He's against you. That's a lie from the enemy. And then if you can do that, he won't want to turn to God. He'll continue. Look what happens. As this condition becomes more fully established... You'll be gradually freed from the tiresome burden of providing pleasures as temptations. You don't have to tempt him away from God with good stuff. He doesn't want to turn to God. <laughs> Watch. As the uneasiness and his reluctance to face it cut him off more and more from all real happiness. So he gets further and further down a spiral of depression and darkness. As habit renders the pleasures of vanity and excitement and flippancy at once less pleasant and harder to forego. For that's what habit fortunately does to a pleasure. You will find that anything or nothing is sufficient to attract his wandering attention. You no longer need a good book, which he really likes to keep him from his prayers or his work or his sleep. A column of advertisements in yesterday's paper will do. You can make him waste his time not only in conversation he enjoys with people he likes, but in conversations with those he cares nothing about on subjects that bore him. You can make him do nothing at all for long periods. You can keep him up late at night, not roistering, but staring at a smartphone in a cold room. Oh, sorry, uh, my version says, uh, staring at a dead fire in a cold room, scrolling, 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 down the smartphone. All the healthy and outgoing activities which we want him to avoid can be inhibited and nothing given in return. Okay, uh, uh, surely I'm not alone. Uh, I know, I know uh, some of you have experienced this. Were you ever assigned, perhaps you went to college, perhaps you lived in the dorms, or you lived in an apartment, and you got to the end of your semester. I know we have a college professor here, you'll appreciate this, who assigns term papers. You got to the end of the semester, and you were assigned a term paper. And as you procrastinated on that term paper, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And you got to a point, didn't you, in your dorm room, as you looked around, where suddenly the most important thing in the world was cleaning the tile grout of the shower, which had not been touched all semester, mind you. This has not been important. And suddenly, because the pressure of facing this thing you don't want to, you don't want to face, mounted so high, literally, you were looking for anything, stuff you would never normally do. Satan can get you to a point where you're so depressed, discouraged, backslidden, and far from God. That you will literally do anything, watch this, or nothing. How scary is this? It used to be Satan had to tempt you with some good stuff 
to get you away from your prayers and away from church. Now, people stop coming to church at first for like fun things, you know? But then you stay away long enough, you feel guilty about that. The guilt heaps up with Satan's lies. Satan piles on more lies. And now you don't even need a fun thing. You just don't want to go. What happened? And what's keeping you from church? Literally, nothing. Capital N, nothing. That's scary. He somehow harnessed the power of nothing. So then, he gets to a point. Look at this. So, oh, nothing given in return. So that at least he may say, as one of my own patients said on his arrival down here. Listen to this quote from a guy in hell. I now see that I spent most of my life in doing neither what I ought nor what I liked. <laughs> and if you're not going to do what you ought, at least get some fun out of it. And he's like, I ended up with neither. <laughs> the Christians describe the enemy as, and this is a brilliant line. You should underline this and think about it until you get the, get the play on words. The Christians describe the enemy as, quote, one without whom nothing is strong and nothing is very strong. God is the one without whom nothing is strong. Get it? Without whom even nothing can topple you. And without whom nothing has any strength. Okay. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what, knows not why, in the gratification of curiosity so feeble that man is only half aware of them as he scrolls through TikTok after TikTok video. In the drumming of fingers and watching of videos and kicking of heels and scrolling through social media. In whistling tunes and dabbling in Netflix and he doesn't even like the shows he's watching. He doesn't care. He spent an hour searching for a show that he may or may not watch. Never in fact watching a show. Just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. In the long dim labyrinth of reveries. Reveries are uh, daydreams. That have not even lust or ambition to give him a relish but which once chance association has started them, the creature's too weak and fuddled to shake off. You'll say, yeah, but these are very small sins. Huh. Doubtless, like all young tempters, you're anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, your affectionate uncle scrutiny. That'll give you a nightmare. Luther said, Pecca Fortiter. But he follows it with, Sin boldly, he says. Is that how you spell believe or is that he come first? Okay. No one knows how to spell when they get to a whiteboard. Have you noticed that? Be gentle on anybody who tries to spell in public. Because suddenly, and there's no little red line that appears that you go. <laughs> he says to his friend, Sin boldly. But in the same sense, he finishes it with, but believe in his grace even more boldly. No, it's come to repentance. Call it what it is, man. It's sin. And it's bad. But believe that his grace is greater than your sin. Wake up to your condition. And realize Scrutate is happy to drag us on a road to perdition that is gentle, soft, no sudden turns, no milestones, no signposts. Whew! Can't wait till next week. Hope this guy gets...
Some good news. Looking pretty bad. Is chapter 12 the end? Is the guy going to end up in hell? Jackie, will you pray?